you find 1 Samuel chapter 7, you can flip back two chapters. We're actually beginning our time this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We are going to cover 1 Samuel 5, 6, and 7. We will be done just in time for the Harvest Festival tomorrow night. Don't worry. It's common knowledge, maybe well known uh, among people, but uh, a lot of celebrities or entertainers, when they travel and they do shows or performances, will have cer- certain requirements that they have for the people who have booked them. Uh, musicians will be staying in a guest room or a hotel or have uh, a preparation room, often called a green room, uh, at the uh, venue where they're playing. And th- as a part of their contract, they will always have stipulations. We require these things to perform for you at your venue, and, and maybe you've heard of them. Some of them have become sort of notorious. One, one band, uh, not a Christian band, I don't think, uh, Van Halen, <laughs> they had a very strange requirement and an interesting reason for it. They required M&Ms to be on the table uh, in the room before the show, but they wanted all of the green M&Ms removed. No green M&Ms were allowed in the M&M containers. If they found a green M&M, they would cancel the show. Serious. And somebody asked the leader of the band, they said, now wh- this is such a weird request and it seems a little bit stupid. Why would you do this? He said, here, I'll tell you, there's an, actually a reason for this. All the M&Ms taste the same, right? Don't they? This is the thing. Our, our contract is a very detailed contract. And some of the, contra- the items in our contract are important, like how you attach things to the ceiling and the kinds of speakers that are necessary. We'd like to know if they've read our contract. So when we show up at a show, if there's green M&Ms in the bowl, we know the stage may not even be safe because they might, if they haven't read that part of the contract, how do we know they use the right gear to keep things from falling onto us on the stage? So that's a good reason. But there are other things that were... Some bands required there be clean socks available in the green room. They wanted a a selection of clean socks available for them in the green room. Another band, uh, actually he's an artist. Uh, I want to connect these examples. His uh, name is Eminem. I know we've already referenced Eminem. When he was on tour overseas in Europe... He wanted an assortment of Taco Bell items available to him and his band, but because Taco Bells aren't the same overseas as they are here, he wanted American Taco Bell food flown over to be available at each of the shows. And if American-style Taco Bell was not available, those are some expensive tacos, by the way, then he would cancel the show. This is what would happen. If you want these guys to show up, this is what you do. You want them to show up. But here's what's funny. I want you to think about it in spiritual terms this way. In your life, and you're thinking about your relationship with God, and maybe you're like me. You have some things in your life you're praying for. You're hoping God will deal with these challenges you face or uh, these difficulties you have or uh, whatever it might be. And this is very common for us to think in these terms, but this is how we think. You know, what's it going to take to get God to show up on this? You know, is he, does he want all the M&Ms out of the jar? Is he... Uh, Do you want my house to go a certain way? Does he want me to talk a certain way? Do I need to pray a certain amount? Do I need to show up at church a certain number of times uh, a month or for a certain number of times per week or or for other certain number of times a decade? What is it going to take to get God to show up? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever had that question? I mean, it's a, it's a silly question because on the one hand, when you ask it, oh, no, 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 I know God doesn't work that way. So I know, we know the right answer, don't we? Yeah, God shows up because he's faithful. But then in the inner workings of our heart, sometimes we don't think along the lines of the, what, what we know is true. How we think and feel is God didn't show up because I'm not good enough. Or God didn't show up because I didn't pray hard enough. Or God didn't show up because he's not faithful. So sometimes, what is it going to take to get God to show up? I want to answer that question in this message today. I want us to be able to leave today with uh, the answer to that question settled in our hearts and minds based on what we find in the Scripture. Because in this section of 1 Samuel, God shows up three times. And so we can look at the way that God shows up and we can apply our question to it and say, well, what was it that made God show up? How is it that that they were, were able to get God to show up and do a powerful work, and then we can use 
the truth of that and apply it to our own life. So hopefully you're motivated to, to stay with me as we go through this. So we're going to talk about what's it take to get God to show up. We're going to look at three ways in 1 Samuel 5, 6, and 7 that God shows up. In fact, the mighty hand of God shows up. 1 Samuel 5. Do you have your finger in 1 Samuel 5? We're not going to read it, but I'll tell you the story. The mighty hand of God against the Philistines. The mighty hand of God against the Philistines. Prior to this, the Philistines had conquered Israel in battle and had stolen, had taken the Ark of the Covenant. If you were Jewish in that time, me saying that would, be, would generate a gasp in you. <gasps> so you don't have to do that now because no, we don't do that. We don't make noise in church, do we? All right. The Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. <gasps> okay, good. You're with me. They had taken it to their city, the Ark of God, and they had taken it uh, to, uh, to Ashdod, one of their cities, and they had placed it in one of their temples. And their temples were not built to the living God. Their temple were built to idols. In fact, this temple in particular was built in honor of the god Dagon, a, a typical deity. In fact, one of the favorite deities of the Philistines, all of the the people of that area were, were pluralistic. They worshipped a number of God, but Dagon in particular was the Philistines' favorite. And so they took the Ark of God to the temple of their God, Dagon, as a way of saying, look, Dagon has defeated the God of Israel. Dagon has defeated the God of Israel. So they placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon, and then they went and had a party. That night, when everybody was sleeping... The giant uh, statue of Dagon, which you can Google it. There are a lot of uh, pretty accurate pictures of Dagon. It's kind of a serpent-looking deal. In the middle of the night, he flopped over and fell over, face down onto the ground. They got in the next morning. They went to the temple of Dagon, and here was the image of Dagon laying face down next to the Ark of the Covenant. It's a little bit annoying. Who knocked over Dagon? Probably the janitor. Couldn't have been the general. Why? Because this was a massive deal. This was not a little figurine on a shelf. These things don't just fall over. So Dagon, of course, dusts himself up, gets back up, and gets onto his place, right? Now, what does it say they have to do? Their powerful and mighty God who had defeated the God of Israel, they assisted him. They, I should say it this way. They just put him back. This is just a statue. He can't do anything. So they lifted the statue and put him back in place and said, okay, all is well. Dagon's on his rightful place, and the ark is still here. We have still defeated the God of Israel. They all leave and come back the next morning. And Dagon has once again fallen over, but this time his head has come off, and his hands and arms have come off. This, they would have known exactly what this means, which is very common. We see it even in the book of Judges. When you defeat uh, an enemy king or enemy general, you would typically behead them, and oftentimes you would keep their hands or maybe their thumbs or maybe their big toes as a trophy to show, I have defeated this king. When they found Dagon face down with his head off and his hands off, they knew exactly what had happened. The God of Israel had defeated their statue. It gets worse. They all start developing tumors. And you would say, well, how do they know that they had tumors? They didn't have CT scans. Did they have headaches? These weren't internal tumors. These were external tumors that they were developing as a result of uh, rodents. There are certain kinds of tumors that will develop based on plagues that are brought in by rats. And we know this later in the story. When they're looking for ways to get rid of the tumors, their uh, chief spiritual dudes... They said, make images of the tumors and images of the rats, and, and we'll send them out, and that will get rid of this plague. So what is happening is rodents and rats were coming in, and they were spreading diseases, and these diseases were causing tumors to develop on their bodies in very uncomfortable places. We'll leave it at that. If you have the King James, you know what I'm referring to, because it translates it hemorrhoids. Okay, I didn't leave it at that. I apologize. We're walking away from that. So this is happening, and so the, the, the Philistines don't know what to do. The, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, it says as in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 5. The, the, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. 
And they said, the ark of, the God, the ark of God can't stay here, they said. We've got to get rid of this thing. And so they send it to the next city up the road. And the next city up the road gets the same problem. They develop tumors and they have rats. And they keep sending it to the next city. In fact, the final city they sent it to was Ekron. And as the ark of God was coming to Ekron, the people of Ekron said, hey, we don't want your ark. Well, why do you want to kill us? The ark settled there, and this is what it said. It says this, so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines, and, and we need to send this ark away. We need to get it back to its own place, for it will kill us and our people. The death had filled their city, and panic had filled their city. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up. In military terms, there's something we call a pyrrhic victory. I may not be pronouncing that correctly, but what kind of victory is that? That is a victory where you exact uh, a victory from your enemy, but it comes at such a high cost, it would have been better to lose and run away. That's where you, you defeat your enemy, but you lost so many men in the war, uh, in the battle, that you will now probably lose the war. And that's the kind of victory that uh, the Philistines discover they've had. We've won the victory, and we've retained the ark of God, but now the cost of it is God is going to wipe us out. God's hand was heavy on the people of Philistia, of Gath, and of Ekron, and of Ashdod. I want to ask you a question. God shows up here. God brings judgment on those who would live contrary to his ways. God brings judgment on those who would deny his power and his might. What is Israel's role here in the victory over Philistia? Think about it. What is Israel's role here in this great victory over the Philistines. What's Israel doing? The theological term is nothing. They're not doing jack. They're probably watching reality TV. They aren't doing anything. In fact, it's important for us to understand that the mighty hand of God was against the Philistines, and in fact what we discover is God is not weak. God is not powerless, and God's power and his might does not require the intervention of his people, Israel. The Philistines had not outgunned God. The Philistines had not outsmarted God. The Philistines had not figured out a way to, to bind God's hands by, by drawing Israel into disobedience. God is still powerful. God is still mighty. He is not weak, even though Israel is completely on the sidelines. God wants to show us, and he wanted to show his people against the Philistines, that God alone is victorious. God alone demonstrates his power. God alone will accomplish his purposes. He requires no help. He requires no assistance. His hands are not tied in our disobedience, and he is not ob obligated by our obedience. God is simply in charge. And what we discover in 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the mighty hand of God was against the Philistines. Why? Because Israel was awesome? No. Because the mighty hand of God was against the Philistines. And God does as he like and likes, and God does as he intends, and he does so with power and with might. And the silly God Dagon was no match for the God of the universe. From the fall of man in the Garden of Eden... Until the world today, mankind has been opposed to God. The Philistines are not unique in their opposition to the God of the universe, are they? The, the Philistines are not unique in any regard. Just in this uh, story, in this historical event, they stand in for every human who has ever lived, up, including Israel. Everybody's opposed to God. That is the status of mankind once we decided to rebel against God. Everyone is opposed to God. Now, I want us to understand, as we discover from the Philistines, when man rebelled against God, God has not spent the rest of human history how to figure out to fix this mess. He already knows. God is not on his heels. God is not trying to figure out what to do. He's not wringing his hands in heaven going, what in the world am I going to do? This didn't go the way I thought. To use boxing terms, God is not on the ropes. God is not scrambling to try and get the touchdown. God is not hoping that everything works out. 
God just simply is reigning as king of the universe, as he has always done, and he helped the Philistines see that in a very strange way. He let them know, no, 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 listen, guys, you can put my ark anywhere you want. I am still God of the universe. And if I want a bunch of rats to come in and give you diseases, it's on. There is no stopping God's hands. He is not uh, trying to figure out a better plan. He, he doesn't need any help from Israel. He doesn't need any help, frankly, from us. He doesn't need any help. It's silly for, for us to think he does. God's hand against the Philistines shows us that God is not weak. God is not powerless. God is in control, and he is in charge. He is winning this thing, and he has been since day one. I mean, we must understand this, right? God is winning this thing, and he has been since day one. There has not been a day in all of history that God has been losing. There has not been a single day in all of history uh, that we could, that recorded history, unrecorded history, that God goes, oh, gee, I mean, this may not work out the way I thought. There hasn't been a moment, there hasn't been a second that God has said, well, gee, I, this is getting sideways on me. Now, for you and I, this is our experience. That's called getting up in the morning. And so then we take our experience and put that on God. He must be scrambling to figure this thing out. It's ludicrous. We're not talking about bands anymore. Yeah, like a few people got that. Okay, for the rest of you, there's a band named Ludicrous. And so now you know, okay. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see this over here and how Jesus outlines. It's really cool. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, he, he gives a parable, which he often did. Jesus knew their thoughts. Some religious people had just called him a Satanist. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, as Abraham Lincoln said, every kingdom divided, he didn't say that, okay? Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided itself against itself cannot stand. He's saying, listen, if I'm work, doing my work by the power of the devil, then you're saying the devil's kingdom is divided. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself, and how can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Beelzebub just... So you know, is a, a reworking of old Philistine gods. So the connection here is profound. So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, think about it, just a hypothetically religious people. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then guess what? The kingdom of God is upon you. Verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And what is Jesus saying here in this parable? It's incredible. This is Jesus describing himself as someone breaking and entering a home. He's entering someone's home, and he says, I'm going to take over this home, and it's you, so the first thing I'm going to do is bind up the strong man. Who's the strong man in this parable? Satan. Who's the thief? Jesus. He walks into the house, and he binds up the strong man, and, and, and when was that accomplished? He spent his entire ministry life casting out demons to show everybody, I'm in charge, seriously, this is ridiculous. You guys think demons are powerful? The kingdom of God has come. Then he dies on the cross and forever ends the power of Satan in this world. It's over. It's not maybe, I, like I hope it works out. Game over, it's done. It's not like a Seahawks-Cardinals game. It ended in a tie last week. We're not waiting to see what happens in overtime. Game over, strong man bound. The house is wide open for anybody who wants to walk in and loot the thing. The kingdom of the universe invaded our experience in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross and forever bound the strong man. And then he comes to us and say, hey, why don't you plunder this guy's house? Because he's dead. He's bound. All he has to look forward to now is judgment. The house is, is secure. Let's plunder the thing. And he calls us to make disciples. The mighty hand of God is against the Philistines, and the mighty hand of God invaded reality in the person of Jesus Christ. He had complete victory over Satan. He had complete victory over sin, and it's done. It didn't require our intervention. It didn't require our help. Frankly, if we would have tried to help, we just would have messed it up. 
He just simply came in and had victory and said, have fun plundering the guy's house. Go and make disciples. He cannot stop you. You realize, of course, Satan cannot stop us from making disciples. Completely impossible. We can. We can bind our hands. We can say, well, when's God going to show up? What do I got to do to get God to show up? And you say, what do you mean? I rose from a grave. What do you got to get me to do to show up? I showed up. The house is open. Plunder his house. Jesus is against the devil, and he wins. The mighty hand of God was against the Philistines, and he won without the help of Israel. In Joshua chapter 5, the people of Israel had just crossed the Jordan River, and they were making plans for invading the Promised Land. And Joshua was taking a walk, and he was near the city of Jericho. And he encountered a military man. It was the angel of the Lord, which is scary. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appearing is really uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who uh, when he is born is called Jesus, appearing before his incarnation. And Joshua asked the angel of the Lord, the general of God's army, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Do you remember how the angel responds to Joshua? neither. That's kind of, that's, that's spooky, by the way, when you're getting ready to invade and you are going on the Lord's behalf and the angel of the Lord is there and you say, hey, who are you for us or uh, the Canaanites? And the angel of the Lord says, neither. I am the general of the Lord's army. I am the commander of the host of God. Another thing to notice about that incident, where was the angel of the Lord? It was in Canaan. That's where Israel was going. I think another thing the angel of the Lord would have said if he was like us. He said, I'm not for you. Uh, and, and by the way, thanks for joining me, by the way, 40 years late on that one. Because of your disobedience, I'm in, you know, I didn't need your help to invade, but thanks for joining me. It's time to get God's work done here. The mighty hand of God was against the Philistines And now we're going to see this scary notion, this frightening notion of the mighty hand of God against Israel. Chapter 6 of 1 Samuel. God tends to break down our preconceived notions about how he works. We tend to create in our minds this false notion that he's got his favorites. God's plan is to reveal who he is by the redemptive work of all of history accomplished on the cross. And if that means Israel needs to take a beating, then so be it. The mighty hand of God against Israel, chapter 6. The Philistines had decided they needed to be rid of this ark that caused tumors and brought rats. So they called up uh, their spiritualists, their diviners, their seance masters, and said, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we get rid of this thing? They came up with a really weird plan, and for some reason God let this plan work. They said, take two cows that have just had calves, Take those calves away from them and put them in a pen. Now, these two cows, we want to make sure they have never worn a yoke before in their whole life. Put a yoke on them with a brand new cart and put the Ark of the Covenant on that cart. And then in a box next to the cart, put five golden images of tumors and five golden images of rats. Put them next to it because you can't send the Ark of the Covenant away without an offering. That's weird, okay? I mean, sometimes you read the Bible, some weird stuff in it. I don't even want to know what a golden tumor looks like. I don't, like, you're welcome for the rest of the day. Yeah, just some friendly, do not Google that. Do, you are not going to like. So they, they, now why would they do this with the cows? What's a, a cow who's just had a calf going to do? It's going to go where his baby is. Every time. Once or twice. This is going to go where the baby is. What's a cow that's never pulled a cart going to do? Anybody ever showed a cow where a road is? That takes training. That, the the uh, yoke animals are trained animals to pull the cart and to know the difference between the road and the ditch. And what they were saying is, listen, let's, let's put two cows who have no idea what they're doing, and if they go against nature and return to Israel, then we know that God was in it. 
That is about the only part of this entire plan that makes any sense. And interesting what the Bible says is they made a beeline right up the road. They never left the road, the Bible says. And they went straight for Israel. And the entire way, what were they doing? The Bible says they were lowing the whole way. What's that mean? It means they are being led. The entire way, every part of those cows wanted to go see their calves. And every part of these cows wanted to get this yoke off of them. But that, that yoke was being led straight to Israel. And the Philistines knew that God's hands was returning the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And it shows up at this city in Israel. Verse 13 of chapter 6, if you want to follow with me. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And they looked up and they saw the Ark of the Covenant. And they rejoiced. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And, and there it stopped beside a, a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the rock. And the people of Beth Shemesh offered, offered, offered offerings. And when the people of Philistines, the ruler of the Philistines, saw that the people of Israel had the ark and seemed to have everything in control, they returned home. The mighty hand of God against Israel. Because God is not impressed. The mighty hand of God against Israel. God is not impressed. Another way we could say this, God, by the way, is not desperate. The people of Beth Shemesh got it into their head that God finally wanted a better suitor, and so he had sent the Ark of the Covenant to their city because, frankly, they were amazing. Beth Shemesh was a Levitical town, a town full of priests. They knew what to do. You offer a sacrifice, right? Ark of God offers a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifices are allowed in the Old Testament? Male. All animals of sacrifice in the Old Testament are male. How do we know these two cows aren't male? How often does the Bible say it's okay to set the Ark of the Covenant on a rock and then put offerings before it? Never. There are very particular ways in which God is to be worshipped in the Old Testament because that is a very particular way in which he revealed his nature as righteous. And these people in their religiosity, and look how amazing we are, God, who got dumped by the Philistines, has found himself a better suitor. Of course, we're amazing. Why wouldn't God show up? God wasn't impressed. And the Bible says that 70 of their people were killed because they had the gall to open up the Ark of the Covenant and peer inside. As some of your translations may say 50,000 people were killed. It's because there are a couple of different numbers that show up in different texts. What we do know from the Bible is the loss that day was massive. This was a loss that this city would feel for generations. God showed up. God is not impressed. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, who are the, there are two spiritual people in this entire chapter. Who are they? Cow A and cow B. Because they followed where the Lord led. All the religious people are a total train wreck because for some reason they thought God was just happy to find some religious people. Read Jesus' life. How happy is he to stumble upon religious people? The first Samuel chapter 6 paints the only obedient and godly characters in the entire story are the two cows and paint the religious people as presumptive and evil. Really, the comparison between 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 1 Samuel chapter 6 compares Israel with the Philistines. What happened to the Philistines? They died at the hand of God. What happened to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 6? They died at the hand of God because God is not impressed. Sometimes we think of God as we think of a single person who's dating. Maybe they've been dating for a long time and haven't been able to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. And pretty soon, maybe you start lowering your standards. You know, well, at this point, I just need somebody with a heartbeat. And then we think God is this way. Like, look at the culture around us. Nobody is worshiping God. Nobody is loving God. I mean, he is so lucky to have us. 
Yeah, listen, God is not desperate. What was God doing two billion years ago when it was just him, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Was he, you think he had nothing to do? He's been living his entire existence, which is all time, in perfect relationship with himself. He has no need of us. God is not wringing his hands, hoping he will get people to follow him. He is not hoping that maybe he'll find a faithful few that will do his bidding. God is not desperate. God is not waiting to somehow have a group of people impress him with their insight and knowledge and obedience. Frankly, God was able to get that from a couple of cows. If that's all he wanted, he could just raise a population of cows. What is Israel's role to be in this moment of God as not being desperate? God is not needing to be impressed. What is Israel's call there? To be faithful to this gracious God who would, would know them and call them his own. God did not call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel. God did not call us as believers in Christ because he was lonely. He did so because calling people like us brings him great glory, but he is not in need of us. From the fall of man in Eden until now, we have been seeking to worship God on our terms, seeking to worship God according to our purposes, to impress God, to impress others, and by his favor. This is human worship. This is the way worship works around the world. When we worship according to our ways and not God's ways, is to impress God, impress others, and by God's favor. Look in any religious system, and that's the deal, isn't it? God's not impressed. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 23, and I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 25. This is what Jesus says to those who would worship him in human ways. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you were full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The Pharisees didn't like that. Why? It's impossible to clean the inside of the dish. You've tried. Obedience is hard enough. Changing how I actually think and feel, that's impossible. Verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This is what it means to worship God in an effort to impress others or to impress him and to try and get him to do our bidding. He says, woe to you. How will we escape hell? We work so hard as Christians to try and get God to show up in our life. And we need to come to grips with this reality. Is he doesn't need us the way in which we need him. There is nothing we can do as people that will obligate God to do something we want him to do. There is nothing we can do that will obligate God to do something we want him to do. If there was something we could do to get him to do our bidding... Well, that's just a lame God. What good is a God who will do what we want? I mean, look what happens when we get what we want. How'd that work out for us? I mean, heaven forbid he gave us what we're looking for. It's in his grace and his mercy that he can't be obligated by our worship. It's in his grace and his mercy that he does his purposes, not ours. It's by his grace that he accepts us into relationship even though he doesn't need it. John the Baptist said it this way when people were complaining to him that Israel was the chosen race. He, they, that was the people of God. What did he say? What did John the Baptist say when that was brought up to him? Well, God has to help us. We're his people. John the Baptist, he's kind of a straight shooter. I don't think he could uh, run for political office. See, listen, if God wanted to raise up Israelites from him for himself from these rocks, he could do that. Yeah, so, so if all of, all of you guys 
you know, marched off a cliff, whatever. He, he could raise up Israelites out of these rocks. You, th- you think you're going to bind God's hands? Hey, I'm, a, I'm an Israelite. I'm a, I'm a man of God. I'm a woman of God. He's got to show up. Listen, God could, could take some rocks and generate for himself a people. He's not obligated. He's not moved merely by our religious accolades. My, excuse me. It's the... Uh, titanium hip I guess I have to stand this I will be motionless the mighty hand of God You hear that okay? So it kind of just proves the point. I prayed to God this morning we wouldn't have any technical issues. And he probably answered that prayer. The issue is not technical issues. It's probably operator error, so I apologize. The mighty hand of God. If we don't have the ability to stop him, like the Philistines, if we can't stop God's power, And if we can't entice God to action through what we determine to be authentic worship or uh, good behavior or obedience, what are we left with? We have the mighty hand of God against the Philistines because they could stop God, which is silly. God's not weak. He's not paralyzed. And we have the Israelites who didn't understand. They had the mighty hand of God against them because they thought they could entice God to serve on their behalf through their impressive religion. God wasn't impressed. Well, that leaves us with Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. What we discover is the ark eventually was moved uh, from this field, Joshua's field, this rock that they had put it up on, and they took it to a city called Kiriath Jerim, and they take it to a guy's house named Abinadab. Why would they do that? Why didn't they take it back to Shiloh where it was? when the Philistines had taken it. And probably the reason they didn't take it to Shiloh is most likely the Philistines had destroyed Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was. Shiloh is where the the tabernacle was set up and then they also had buildings that they had built for the priests and storage rooms and whatnot. So the Philistines had, had destroyed the tabernacle, the one that Moses had made in the wilderness. Can you believe it? Shiloh didn't even exist anymore. And the people were at a loss. What are we going to do? How do we worship God, the place of God's worship? And so they, they took the Ark of the Covenant to Abinadab's house, and it was there that the priests did the work of God. And the Bible tells us in verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 7, 20 years the Ark remained there, and during 20 years the people of Israel mourned and sought the Lord. 20 years they mourned and sought the Lord. Guess what? They're, they're starting to get it. Their hearts were broken because they had realized they didn't relate to God according to his terms, and their hearts were broken because they realized that their relationship with God was severed, and their hearts were broken. And so for 20 years they mourned, and they sought the Lord, asking God to show up, asking God to intervene, asking God to show them what to do, and, for, and Samuel comes to them, and he says this, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then get rid of your foreign gods. 20 years, Samuel let them mourn before he took action. Can you believe that? He wanted to make sure this was the real deal, real repentance here. He wasn't going to do a fake deal. Year 10, I mean, what did they say? Samuel, we've been mourning, we're sad, 10 years. I mean, is that good? He's like, no, I don't know if it's real yet. 20 years they mourned and they seek the Lord. 20 years later they said, listen, he says, okay, if you're really into this, if you really want to serve the Lord, then get rid of all of your idols, get rid of all of your uh, temples to Ashtoreth in the balls. And they did. They repented. And they got rid of all their idols and all of their temples and their Asherah poles and their, their idols to Baal. And, and they all came together and they had a great time of fasting, not feasting, fasting. And, and mourning, and they assembled. 
And they drew water and poured it out as if to say, God, cleanse us from all of our sin. We're not coming to you because we think we're holy. We're coming to you because we know we're not. They, call, they, they, they had a significant time of repentance, a significant time of confession, a, a time of humble worship where they seek God on his terms, not theirs. They come to him and say, God, we worship you, the powerful God, because we are not powerful. We worship you, the, the God who imposes his will. We don't come to worship you in order to impose our will. And then revival breaks out. A, a time of spiritual renewal among the Jewish people. And what happens in that moment? Well, exactly what we'd expect to happen. Once they finally get everything right, their life goes perfect. There's never another problem. Immediately, the Philistines discovered these people were having a gigantic church service and things were going spiritually swimmingly. And the Philistines gathered a massive army and came to destroy them all. Can you believe that? The gall of God. These people are repenting in humble humility, and God has the gall to not simply make everything go good for them. The Philistines come to them, and they're going to destroy them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid. They said this to Samuel. Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue. A person who's driven to fear through humble confession and finally gets to that place to say, God, may you help us. I got, no, I, I got nothing. That is when you know God is doing a powerful. And that, that's one of the ways you know that, that God is really working in your heart because I got nothing else, God. As the prophet Jeremiah says in the book of Lamentations, God, I got nothing, but you are my portion. So what do I need? Samuel took a lamb, and he offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. When Samuel had finished the sacrifice, the Philistines drew near. And this is where we pick up where we read, and this is a, an amazing verse. They drew near to engage Israel in, in battle, but that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder. And that's drawn right out of the, the song of Hannah that we read earlier. Lord God, thunder against your enemies. And the Lord thunders against the Philistines, and they go into such a panic that they were routed by themselves. The thunder was so loud that they went nuts and they simply killed each other. And the men of Israel then rushed out and finished the job. God had the victory. He didn't need help. The mighty hand of God was for Samuel because God is faithful. God is faithful to the repentant. The mighty hand of God was for Samuel because God is faithful. Samuel took up a stone and he set it up and he said, this is Ebenezer. Thus far, God has helped us. God has helped us. Sometimes I think we get into our minds uh, that revival among the people of God, revival in the world around us, is when the world around us finally figures out that Christians are right. Great revival will break out when the world and community around us finally say, you know, those Christians are onto something. Revival in U.S. history, in European history, and throughout biblical history was always when Christians or the people of God realized they were wrong. That we had mistaken God for an idol and decided that we could somehow get him to do our bidding by being the good guys. And Israel was driven by the mighty hand of God to that point of repentance where they say, we are wrong. We have worshipped God presumptively. We have made assumptions about his nature. We have assumed that he needs us and he's never going to find anybody as great as us. This is what it looks like over in the New Testament, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. You can turn there or listen along. 
Jesus is there observing some people praying and some were praying self-righteously. And Jesus says this, two, two men went up to the temple to pray, which was common. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. A tenth, can you believe that? Average American donates 2.5% of his income to charity, so the religious Pharisee is outgunning us. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look into heaven, but he beat his breast and said this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Your ways are not my ways. I tell you the truth, this man, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home righteous before God. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The Philistines attack. God shows his faithfulness to his own purpose and his plan, not because of Israel, but Israel in the midst of that saw his power through their humble repentance, and God thundered. The Philistines thought they could overpower God. The religion in Israel thought they could impress God. The humble in Israel saw the power of God. To connect this with the story we read earlier, God thundered, they plundered. God thundered, they plundered. We had a question we asked at the beginning of the message. Remember what it was? What's it going to take for God to show up? I don't know if we've answered the question. I'm going to try here if you haven't answered it already. What's it going to take for God to show up in a situation like the Philistines? God's enemies are everywhere. They can't be defeated and powerless to do so. Guess what? He's already handled it. There isn't an enemy of God he hasn't defeated. There's not an enemy of God out there uh, that, that he's still biding his time, waiting until he's gathered enough resources to handle it. We may uh, engage in a spiritual activity I like to call holy hand-wringing. What are we going to do if God doesn't show up here? I mean, is he on break? Did you punch out a cigarette break or something? That's, that doesn't seem right. Well, where, where is he? I mean, doesn't he understand what's happening in our country? Doesn't he understand what's happening in my family? Doesn't he understand what's happening in my neighborhood? Because somehow we've come up with this assumption that God hasn't shown up. What are we going to do with with all of these problems we face in our own life, and our families, in our nation, and the world around us, God's enemies are victorious, aren't they? No, that's just simply not true. God has shown up, and God's victory is sure. Holy hand-wringing isn't going to help as we sit by and hope that God shows up in the way we want him to. When all is said and done, every moment of all of history will bring glory to God himself. And there will not be a single second in any place in all of the universe that does not point to the majesty and glory and power of God. All of it's already done. Against the enemies of God, we don't have to seek to have God to show up. He already has. The call here is in faith to rest in the fact that he has had his victory. What's it going to take for God to show up in our worship? We think that we have to do something to engage in this relationship with God. We have to do something because if, if I don't live up to his standards or if perhaps uh, I do something wrong, therefore the whole plan is going to, the wheels are going to come off. And, and what's God going to do if I don't hold up my end of the bargain? We worship God presumptively when we assume that he needs us to worship him. We worship God presumptively when we assume that he will somehow be less God if we don't worship him in the way in which we see fit. Seeking to oppress God is not going to get him to show up. 
Maybe that's something we need to write down in the recesses of our heart and mind. Seeking to impress God will not get him to show up. I only repeat that because I think for those of us who have a religious background, that's a major hang-up. What happens is when God shows up, somehow we decide we're super spiritual. God answered my prayer. I must be awesome. Or when God doesn't show up, all of a sudden, God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And I know none of you have ever thought in those terms, right? God has already dialed in with who he is. He doesn't need us to worship him, but he takes great joy and pleasure in our worship that comes to him in humility. So how do we get God to show up? We look in the life of Samuel. God is faithful. God will show up. It doesn't require us to do anything. It doesn't, us not doing something will not inhibit his faithfulness. His faithfulness is defined and demonstrated based on who he is, not in who we are, based on what he does, not based on what we do. God is faithful. But if we want to engage and see him working, there is a means for us to connect with that. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 to see that. I'm going to read it, and this is how we're going to close the message is by reading this. How do I, as a believer, how do I, as a person, see where God is working, much like Joshua did, where I get to that place where I see the Lord and where he's at? It's much like Samuel did. Matthew chapter 5. Did you find it? It's a section you're familiar with, but I want you to read it with new eyes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. None of us can pull all those things off, so Jesus just simply says, I'll do them all for you. And all of these things were done on the cross. And so we come to him in faith and say, Jesus, can you be humble for me? Because I need you.